You are listening to Telly's Talk, a podcast on being complete in Christ. Today's podcast is all about church membership. Should we be members of the church we are attending? Are you? It seems that the idea of church membership is one which is being touted as passé, something our grandparents did because they didn't know any better. But is it this generation which is treating the body of Christ with disdain? Let's listen in now as the topic of church membership is discussed by our host. Hello and welcome to a new and abbreviated version of Telly's Talk. I have taken on a new position at work and it leaves me with less time to prepare my podcast every month. So I've decided that I will scale back the length of each podcast to allow me the time I need to get it done. As I said last month, today we will be talking about church membership. Are you a member of your church? Should you be? And what does the Bible say about church membership? In 2010, while I was attending a church in British Columbia, one of my friends informed me that he was not a member of our church. And this struck me as odd, since he was very active with different ministry positions in the church. And he had received baptism at the same church only a few years earlier. Then I remembered a mission trip that I had been part of in 2006 where some youth were baptized and chose to not enter into membership as well. What is happening in our churches? There is a disturbing lack of responsibility and reverence to the church, the corporate body of Christ, and the bride of Christ. This seems to mirror today's society and the disdain we are seeing for all institutions, be they governmental, instructional, cultural, or religious. Why are people reluctant to become members? Are they afraid of the commitment? This ties in closely with a lack of responsibility. Look at how our families are falling apart. Divorce is easy. You don't have to work on your marriage if you don't need to be committed to it. In the same way, we see that commitment no longer holds an ethic in society either. So then, is church membership a question of ethics? Ethics has been described as herd morality. Does that notion work here? Does commitment only hold regard amongst us because everyone else is doing it? The ethic of commitment does not hold to herd morality, since it is essentially a deeply held belief that once you've agreed to do something, you must do it until it's finished or completed. If we were to hold to the herd, then obviously the value we place on commitment would be misplaced. Consider our society's fascination with cancel culture. Quiet quitting, divorce, abortion, and promiscuity, just to name a few. I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge the fact that no one Bible verse talks about church membership. And this is similar to the doctrine of the Trinity. No verse in the Bible mentions the Trinity either. However, that does not mean that such teachings are wrong or unbiblical. Historically, church membership and baptism were linked together as one act. An act of personal commitment. It wasn't all that long ago when the church would not allow a couple to get married unless they were members of that church. The argument was also made that refusing to join a membership with a church was the basis for denying baptism. Why does membership seem to carry this level of importance? I think we can begin to define it in four points. The first point is this. Membership represents an intentioned responsibility of Christians to each other. In Galatians 6 verse 2 we read, Bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, had already told him in chapter 5 that the fulfillment of the law is love. 
This echoes Christ's words in John 13:34 to 35, where he commands us to love one another. And in this verse, he is helping to demonstrate how that should be expressed as a church. In Colossians 3:16, Paul says this to the church in Colossae, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. How do you impactfully and effectively discipline and admonish non-members? You cannot. Non-members have no investment in the fellowship of believers. So then, why would the church tolerate non-members practicing their corrupted communitas? 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Here again, the instruction in this verse only holds weight to those inclined toward teaching and discipline. We are often told that the notion of membership is something the church dreamt up to collect money from its congregants. But we know that as early as 60 AD, the Didache in chapter 14 verse 2 mentions people joining the assembly. In fact, when you read through the whole Didache, you find that it is actually a manual for members, outlining their rights and responsibilities to the assembly. The early theologian Cyril of Jerusalem, who lived from 313 to 386 AD, described entry into the church membership with Pauline and patristic concepts of adoption as sons, called huiothesia. In Cyril's writings, childhood terminology, as well as the term Christian, are ascribed strictly to fully initiated members of the church. The motif of the church as a family and our reference to the family of God begins to fail when those outside of the family start claiming rights of family as well. The excuses for this are endless and exhausting, but some simply refuse membership so they are not asked to join boards. Our responsibilities to the church as members are accountability, attendance, teaching Christ to our family and others, volunteering, participation, living our lives with a Christian ethic, accepting discipline, and agreeing with our church's confession of faith. The membership model is built on God's design of the family, the doctrine of adoption, and kingdom building. Being joined in membership affirms our support for the family of God and a heart toward evangelization. The second point is that pastors have a responsibility to the members. As someone who grew up in the church as a pastor's kid, I have witnessed firsthand the insane responsibilities and expectations heaped upon the pastor of a church. Very often, the pastor comes into a church with an understanding of biblical responsibility to the flock. Their responsibilities and duties are first to God, secondly to himself, and then toward others. The all-too-common act of reversing this order is detrimental to both the pastor and the congregation. Acts 20 verse 28 reads, Be on guard for yourselves and for the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Likewise, 1 Peter 5 verse 2 says, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. The pattern of responsibility for church leaders is clearly shown in the lives of God's prophets, priests, and kings, the life of Jesus, and the lives of the apostles. In 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul talks about the role of church leaders when he writes, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ, the stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards to be found trustworthy. 
The clearest indication for pastors, however, is found in 1 Timothy 3, verses 2-7, through 7, where it says, An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, skillful in teaching, not overindulging in wine, not a bully, but gentle, not contentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation, incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil. When we read a passage like this one, there are a lot of things which should alert us to how a pastor's personal life also translates to his relationship and responsibility to the membership. Interestingly, there are traditional responses to a pastor's manifestation of their responsibility. Some denominations require the pastor to be rebaptized in order to serve the congregations. On the other hand, some pastors are refused membership in order to keep them from voting on issues at either the congregational or administrative level. The third point is that members have a responsibility to the pastors. Can I call this point the red shirt mentality of the modern church? If you've ever watched the original Star Trek TV show, you will know what I'm getting at. If you were hired as an actor to play an extra in the original Star Trek series and the costume designer handed you a red shirt, you knew you were going to be killed off. Our churches treat their pastors much the same way today. We have lost our respect and accountability to those who have been called to lead. Maybe this is because the leaders being hired are just that, hired. We treat our leadership as employees whom we hold at arm's length with the threat of dismissal at every turn. How should we treat our pastors and what are our responsibilities? We should pray for our pastors as it says in Colossians 4 verse 3. We should treat them with respect and esteem as it says in the third book of John verses 9 and 10. We ought to pay them a living wage or better, as it says in 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 through 18. And we should stand beside them during trials, as we read in 1 Timothy 5, verse 19. However, it is our responsibility to hold them accountable as well, as it says in 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20. We should also imitate them, as we are instructed in Hebrews 13, 7. And ultimately, we should obey them. This is what it says in Hebrews 13:17. Obey your teachers and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they may do this with joy, not groaning, for this would be unhelpful for you. What if our pastors were our sons and daughters? Would that change the way we interacted with them, our desires for them, or our responsibility to them? Why is it that we treat ministers of God like replaceable, nameless faces, easily dispose of when they challenge us or expose us when we err. Alan Hirsch, founder of Forge International, wrote, You cannot build a church on consumers. They'll desert you at a moment's notice because they have no commitments beyond meeting their own needs. Jesus can take 12 disciples and build a movement that changes the world. He could never have done that with consumers. The fourth point I have is that the Bible describes the church as the body of Christ and Christians as members of that body. Mark J. Keown, senior lecturer in the New Testament at Laidlaw College in Auckland, New Zealand, said, Our culture is very individualistic, arguably narcissistic. Because of this, 
we tend to read Jesus' words in a selfish and individualistic sense. We need to check this tendency and remind ourselves constantly that Jesus' words are directed toward the ideal of a community based on personal relationships. The ultimate goal of God is not merely that everyone individually is saved, but the creation of a new humanity into which each individual is grafted by faith. Just as the church has an international membership to it, the local church also defines itself as containing within it the body of Christ. This is what is being described in Romans 12 verses 4 and 5 where it says, For just as we have many parts in one body, and all the body's parts do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually parts of one another. This teaching is repeated in 1 Corinthians 12:27, which reads, Now you are Christ's body, and individually parts of it. Pastor Connolly Owens wrote this regarding the body of Christ. One could point out that this is just talking about the universal church composed of all Christians regardless of which assembly they attended. However, both of these passages in their larger context addresses how local churches ought to operate. In other words, participation in Christ's body happens through membership in a local church. And this brings us back to the topic of ethics, particularly a kingdom ethic. How does God want the subjects of his kingdom to live? If you aren't accountable to God, where do your loyalties lie? We are one body of Christ. We are a worldwide church made up of members whom God has called for his purpose. We are not disjointed, chaotic, or confused, but one people under the Godhead. As it says in Matthew 12, verse 22 through 28, a house divided cannot stand. John Chrysostom wrote in his homily on Ephesians, For if all things are common and one has nothing more than another, whence this mad folly? We partake of the same nature, partake alike of soul and body. We breathe the same air, we use the same food, whence this rebellion rising of one against another. To refuse membership in the church is rebellion. To argue against membership is heresy, and to deny it is to harm the body of Christ. To appropriate a saying of Augustine, right is right, even if no one is doing it. Wrong is wrong, even if everyone is doing it. Let us pray. Father God, we are your body. We are the body of Christ. We are believers who live in community, and we ought to treat each other as brothers and sisters. Please help us to remember who we are in you and our relationship to you and our responsibilities as Christians and members of your church. We pray that we would seek a oneness and a familiarity with each other to do that which we have been called to do. Amen. Thank you so much for being a part of what Talia's Talk is doing. Please share what we are doing with your friends. And next month, our podcast is called You're Going to Die. I'm sure you will want to hear what we have to say. I am looking forward to sharing with you again. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Next month on Talia's Talk, we will be addressing You Are Going to Die. That sounds pretty bleak, doesn't it? Come back next month and find out what this really means. Join the conversation we are having on Facebook and Twitter after every podcast. Don't forget, our book, Six Good Questions, is available through Amazon. Pick up a copy for yourself and your church library. It is a great resource for small group discussion. As always, it would be good to hear from you. Send us an email at talliestalk at gmail.com. Keep us in your thoughts and prayers as we prepare our podcast every month. 
We look forward to sharing with you again.